Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, what's up, people? Welcome to episode 24 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. As I mentioned in the first episode of season two, in our premiere with Matthew A. Cherry, we were going to do a few more craft episodes and also introduce the business episode to the pod. And so starting with today, this will be our inaugural business episode entitled hashtag director's life and if you follow me on instagram that's one of the things that i kind of make sure i tag on all creative and work related posts and i figured might as well dive in and delve into what that actually means on a on an economic level and and on a business level as far as you know what directors have to navigate behind the scenes and how the business works and all of that and it's something that I studied closely before I ever booked a job because I feel if you're going to get into any arena, you have to understand the metrics, you have to understand what the numbers mean, and you have to understand what guides and governs the process. So we're going to get into that with this Director's Life episode. Now, I know some of y'all are listening uh, to the pod on Apple, Spotify, Google, whatever it may be, but I do invite you to enjoy... Not only my dog barking in the background, but enjoy the uh, podcast experience on YouTube. You can watch Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman on YouTube. We've added some cool branded graphics, thanks to a friend of the show, Jean-Claude Billmeyer, and basically the visuals have been taken to another level. So I hope you enjoy that. Personally, I think you get an added layer of game and context from our guests when you get to see their body language and feel their vibe as a person. And so I invite you to check that out. Obviously, I know some of you are in your car or cleaning up around the house, or maybe you're listening to the show on the low somewhere you shouldn't be, but you're getting the gems and the jewels because you want to get in the game or you want to further the game. And we appreciate that. But just know that video is there for you. Let's shoot with Pete Chapman, search it on YouTube and check it out. Now, before we dive in here to episode 24, I also want to thank the team that has been rocking with the pod since episode one, when this was just a passion project to help us maintain our sanity through the pandemic. And so that's a special shout out to producer Tristan Nash, who edits all of these episodes and works to flesh out the show that you get week to week, both on YouTube and your audio podcast platforms. So thanks, brother. Jada George, who puts together our 
descriptions and show notes for those of you diving in on YouTube. Uh, the show notes are dope because you can basically click through like chapters per the topic of discussion and hop right to things that you might want to listen to or re-listen to and take notes on. So that part is awesome. So thank you, Jada, for all those late night turnarounds when we hit you with the episode on on, on Tuesday, uh, talking about, can I get that show note back in, in, in like a couple hours? She always comes through. And uh, last but not least, Kelly McCreary, who y'all get to listen to when I'm not yapping. She is our lovely announcer handling the intro, the promo for my upcoming book, Transitions, and a few of the other cues. And obviously all of these folks are super talented outside of the pod. You know, I recognize how important and valuable it is for them to rock with me on this journey of demystifying, directing, storytelling, the entertainment industry, and more. And last but not least, one more shout out. What's good, Kenya? Our metrics have informed us that we are on the top, we are one of the top TV and film podcasts in the country of Kenya. So there, Africa knows what's up. And there are so many stories being told on the continent now. And it's nice to know that at least in some way, our podcast is making an impact for those storytellers over there. So we appreciate that. If you're feeling us here in the States, go ahead and hop on iTunes or YouTube or whatever platform you use to engage with us and leave a review, rate the pod, or, you know, leave a comment. It's all good. All right. So without further ado, I'm coffeeed up. I'm ready. It's Sunday, 9.20 a.m., and uh, let's hop into episode 24 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, Director's Life. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Action. All right. So the first thing we're going to talk about is we're going to deal with the idea of what is a director. And I want to take this opportunity to empower the young emerging storytellers out there who maybe just pick up their iPhone on the weekend or, you know, use their camera whenever they have an opportunity. I feel that if you are picking up a camera and pointing it toward a scenario that you are designing and a story that you're trying to tell, you, my friend, are a director. Doesn't matter if it's not your nine to five job. Doesn't matter if you don't get paid for it. You are a director. I did not get paid for directing for decades. <laughs> and if you would have asked me, I would have told you that's what I did. And I think it's an important psychological state of mind to maintain so you can keep that focus and 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 not belittle, you know, where you are in your life as you move toward the dream. So if you pick up a camera and you focus on telling stories visually with any kind of film device, you, my friend, are a director. Within that, you've got different types of directors. And so I'll break it down in the following way for our purposes here today. You've got branded content directors. And so by that, I'm going to and we're and, and, and this is all kind of leading toward the professional understanding of directing and, and getting paid for it. Right. So you've got branded content directors and that could be anything that exists on social media, whether it's a, a one minute doc profile or music video. The distinction that I'm making with branded content is that you are probably not repped by an agency and not protected by a guild. 
And then because of that, you're getting whatever amount of money you can get for these jobs. And that was my life for a long time, 10, 15 plus years. I would get 800 bucks to direct something for a day. I'd get 3000 bucks for an entire, you know, campaign of videos. Sometimes I would direct and shoot and edit. And you're trying to get by and find a way to, to monetize your, your skill and make some money off of it. And so I'll put branded content at the bottom here as we kind of move up the, the hierarchy. That can still include commercials and music videos, but it's just about the protection of a guild and the frequent negotiation of, of a number to, to get paid and the value on your service. From there, you've got commercial and music video directors. These are going to be the folks that I think are protected by a signatory. They could be in a DGA, they could have uh, a rep, you know, an agent, and there's a more professional kind of ecosystem around the work. Someone is helping to get the jobs for you, negotiating those rates, hopefully. And uh, in some cases, you'll have minimums that you can expect to make. And minimums is important. We'll come back to that over the course of our combo. You've got film directors. Obviously, that's those directing in the feature film space, self-explanatory. And then you've got episodic television directors. So branded content directors, commercial and music video, feature film, and episodic TV. And then you've got a documentary. I did a lot of docs that fell under branded content. I did a feature doc, so that fell under film director. But you'll find this a useful kind of shell upon which to address this conversation. So this episode, though, in particular, will be about episodic television directing. And within episodic television, you've got directors who work in multi-camera, directors who work in single camera, directors who work in live television, and directors who work in reality television. Multi-camera is your classic live in front of a studio audience, kind of filmed much more like a play or theatrical presentation, three to four cameras pointed at the stage, getting multiple shots at one time, being governed by a technical director as they switch through the edit. And, you know, it, it shoots at the end of the week after a week of rehearsal to make sure that the writing is popping and the performances are right. So that's a different thing from single camera, which is something that is being shot more in the film language. And, and that, I mean, you're shooting with one or two or three cameras, but you're shooting in one direction at a time, unless you could be cross shooting. Obviously all of these definitions end up getting very muddy because there's always a it's this, it's this, but it could be that. But in general, a single camera show is not in front of an audience. It's not in the, it's not presented like a play and you're shooting, you're getting your angles one at a time, even if you have multiple cameras at the, at the same time. And then you're editing it together at a later point. Obviously you've got live television, which we all understand things like The Voice, when they have a live edition, I guess that's not really live. You have the news, you have reality television, and those things fall typically more into a multi-camera dynamic, but that's uh, those are your major distinctions. Now, my expertise is in single camera. I have yet to do anything multi-camera. I've done reality, I guess, and, and live things in my branded content days before I had any representation, but we're going to fall into episodic directing specifically and single camera really will be our focus for this conversation. And maybe on another episode, I'll bring an expert back who can speak more expertly to 
working in these other genres of uh, what we do. So who is an episodic director? If we look at the data from the 2019 to 2020 season compiled by the Directors Guild of America, they do these studies every year. Here is the breakdown of who worked. Now, to start with, there were 1,268 individual directors hired to work in the 2019 to 2020 season. 34% of episodes were directed by women, up from 31% the prior season. 66% of those episodes were directed by men, down from 69%. 18% of episodes were directed by African-Americans, up from 15%. 7% of episodes were directed by Latinos, up from 6%. 6% of episodes were directed by Asian-Americans, flat with the prior season. And 67% of episodes were directed by Caucasians, down from 71%. <clears throat> so through initiatives like the diversity training programs and more pipelines to put an eye on different emerging talent from different backgrounds over the past you know really 10 years the those coveted spots you know i mean 1200 available opportunities to direct is not a lot but the numbers are changing and it's beginning to reflect a little bit more of the workforce and the population breakdown now in 2019 to 2020, this is probably an interesting fact because a lot of the folks listening to this may be listening because they're interested in figuring out how to break into television. Out of those 12, well, let's just round it up to 1,300 director positions that were available, employers hired 227 directors who had never directed episodic television before. The percentage of these first breaks going to directors of color grew to 30%, up from 27% the season prior, and just 10% in 2009, while the portion going to women was 47%, just below the prior season's 48%, but up significantly from 11% in 2009. So you can kind of see the inroads that are, that are going on. In an analysis of first-time hires, last season, 105 first break jobs were given to individuals affiliated with the series in another capacity, predominantly writer, producers, and actors. On the other hand, 115 of those 227 jobs, roughly 51%, were given to individuals who were hired for their experience as directors working in other genres such as features and commercials and referred to as career track directors. So that's who I was in 2017. When I entered the game and got my first episode of Blackish, I was one of those career track directors who had done two features and done uh, countless short films and done thousands of branded content videos. I had experience in another field. I just had never been given the opportunity to direct TV. So lastly, just to get into how this works. There is a further breakdown of where these hirings are taking place. And I'll skim through this. You can, you can go to dga.org and check out the diversity tab and see what all these breakdowns are in more detail. But as far as the studios that are really 
making moves and hiring diverse directors and, and being more inclusive. The top three as far as hiring the highest percentage of directors of color are Sony, Warner Media, and Netflix in that order. And then the top three in so far as hiring the highest percentage of female directors are Paramount, HBO, and Disney. So maybe keep an eye on those studios if you're looking to break into particular shows. And uh, last but not least, in the coming years, because some of you listening may not be career track directors, you may be looking to transition from another, another craft within the director department. The DGA is beginning to track and develop a refining methodology for hiring, the hiring of members of the directorial team, assistant directors, unit production managers, associate directors, and stage managers. And that report will be released in the coming months. So... Now we're kind of on the same page about who's getting hired, what a director is, and what that challenge is to really get in the chair. I often say that getting, <laughs> finding yourself with your name on the back of that chair or sitting in the chair that has director on it that a bunch of uh, talented folks cycle through is very much like Game of Thrones. It is a journey to get into that chair. It's a journey to return to that chair and keep it. And, you know, it's much more, it's about many more things than your ability if you go back and listen to our Ten Commandments episode from season one, we really get into an in-depth conversation of how directors keep their job, right? So what you do in prep and production and post, so you can really deliver an awesome episode. But today, we're going to now hop into the coveted question, how much do directors make? Now, all of this is public information, very easily found by searching the DGA website. What happens once you get out of that branded content category that I mentioned, where you're probably performing without representation and really just trying to negotiate everything that you do on your own. Once you get into the guild, you now are going to be dealing with companies who are signatories of that guild. And with that must work with the minimums and protections that the guild has voted for and negotiated to protect its members. So if you look at feature films, as an example, you end up having minimums to make sure directors basically don't get fucked, right? So you're making $20,616 per week. You're guaranteed a two-week prep period. You're guaranteed 10 weeks of employment. You're guaranteed one week of editing. And then after that, there are daily rates based off of days that are in, that are continuous beyond whatever your allotted time may have been. And then there's a different rate for days that go where you come in for one day and it's beyond, it's not continuous. It might be like two weeks after you wrap, they need you for a day to come reshoot. That's a, there's a different number for that, which is more than the continuous daily rate. And so the Guild is making sure that feature film directors are protected in this right so they can present a film that represents their vision of the film they were hired to make before anything else happens to it. So that's a great protection. When you get into television, you have different minimums based off of the different platforms or, or, or network, right? So you have, and I don't want to put this in a necessarily like in a hierarchical order, but for the purposes of this conversation, you've got 
basic cable. So consider like, you know, your TNTs, your freeforms, things that are just on your cable provider that you don't necessarily pay for in addition with a particular subscription, right? So that's basic cable. You've got broadcast, that's your NBC, Fox, ABC, CBS. We all understand those channels that come with our television, right? You've got pay cable, which is going to be your premium channels like HBO, Showtime, things that you have to pick a la carte and pay for individually. And then you've got SVOD, which is subscription video on demand, where you get into your Hulus, your Netflixes, your Amazon Primes, et cetera. And so each of these different networks work with the guild under different minimums. And those minimums reflect the budgets allocated for those networks and those types of shows. So if you were to look at something like Last OG, which I've directed uh, two episodes for, which comes on TBS, which is a basic cable channel, they guarantee you three days of prep, they guarantee you four days of shooting, and they guarantee you $28,452. And these DGA rates change every year. They're negotiated and they, and they go up incrementally, typically. Now, if you hop to a broadcast show, like let's say, let's say a, actually, let, let me correct that. That actually was an incorrect it might have been an incorrect number. It depends on these basic cable shows. It actually depends on the budget of the show, but it could be anywhere from $12,721 to $18,732 for that three-day prep, four-day shooting period on a basic cable show. When you get to network, now you're looking at a similar guarantee as far as prep, three days of prep, four days of shooting, but that's where the number pops up to roughly $28,000 per episode. And what that means, the reason that happens is because there is a different advertising revenue, which then filters its way into the elevated production budgets. What you have often is the minimums are always going to be there, but a lot of times what they'll also do is add a day for prep and a day for production to make sure that they're able to maintain the quality of the show that they are committed to presenting to their audience. So if you take a show like Blackish, of which I've done many episodes, they are required to have the three-day prep and the four-day uh, production period. But for every episode, they give four days of prep and five days of production. So that's how they're able to shoot everything the way that they like to and maintain the integrity of the show. When you get to premium cable, and I'll, I'll kind of lump SVOD into the same box with that, what happens is you've got similar prep and production guarantee, but they devote more time to prep and more time to production. So I did, as an example, on Insecure, I think I had six or seven total days of, of, of prep and production. It was more than, it was like eight on Silicon Valley. And what that really translates to is you probably have a more ambitious script. You have a more nuanced production and filming style. You're going to have opportunities to use bigger toys, right? You Once you pull a crane shot into an episode, you know something that could be done in, in half an hour ends up taking an hour and a half. 
So these shows that have a have a look that they want to communicate and maintain from episode to episode and a certain style, they have more time that they devote to it. And hence, they have larger production budgets and it all kind of dominoes into what you see on the screen. So that is what that looks like for the half hour space. You can look at these numbers on the DGA.org. And then obviously for one hour shows, the numbers get higher. Um, because you're spending more time. You might have seven days of prep and eight days of shooting as a minimum. And that can change based off of the show and the network and all of the same elements that I've mentioned already. So those numbers are already negotiated by the DGA. So you're not in that branded content zone where you're trying to negotiate and figure out what's going to happen. When you hear people say that it is a writer's medium it's the it's the writer's medium in tv these numbers except for, for the rare case of a few folks um like jim burroughs in the multi-camera world there is no quote these numbers are negotiated and when you get a job this is what you're going to get and because these shows are in the business of just writing scripts and hiring competent talented directors to execute on those words through a language that's already been established. When was that language established? That language was established in the pilot. And so that's the other element of television that's being left out so far of what I've told you. When you direct the pilot, first of all, the numbers are negotiable. So that is why a lot of directors love to graduate to directing pilots because there's a certain ceiling on what you can do as an episodic director because it just literally, there's only so much time in a day and, and days in a year. And so with that, even if you complete your calendar and fill it up, maybe you're doing 12 to 15 episodes a year and there's nothing else that you can physically do because you can't be in two places at one time. But with the pilot, while they do have minimums, because they are concerned with getting the, it's more of a competitive position and networks and studios are looking to get the most talented directors in that seat to make sure they're giving their show the best shot at being greenlit it becomes more of a of a of an arms race in terms of finding the directors they want and putting the money into it that they want and so you do have minimum so when you get into the 30 minute pilot space you're looking at $80,000 $80,532 for a 30 minute pilot for a director a 14 guarantee 14 day guaranteed time. And then again, you have your per day rates beyond the guarantee in a continuous calendar and then your individual day rates beyond that. So let's just say you were doing a 30 minute pilot. You shot for 18 days consecutively. You have that 14 day guarantee. So beyond that, you would get 5,572 bucks every day beyond that. 14. So the, the, multiply that by four. If they were to bring you back for a reshoot, then you're looking at roughly $7,000 a day. In the one hour space, you're looking at $107,000. I'm rounding down for 24 days with a different lower per day guarantee. But this is what you're guaranteed to get. If you have a good team, and you have some heat behind you and they really want you, you can negotiate to get much, much higher than this for your pilot deal. So that is why you see directors really, really, really focused on getting into the pilot world. Oftentimes it also means that you'll be an executive producer on said show. 
And being an executive producer on said show means that you are going to be paid for that service for every episode. And you'll also be involved in the creative nuts and bolts of really securing the DNA of what the show will be. So we had Zinga Stewart last week talking about From Scratch, where she's now a a pilot director and EP, and you're deciding what sets will be built. You're deciding whether we'll, what the location will be for the pilot in, in, in certain shows cases, because you're then going to have to build that set on a stage because you probably can't keep going out to do a location scout for every episode of TV. So you're thinking about what will it be like to build that set? All the different things. What lenses will we use? You know, I just came off of my two episode block of you and I love the look of that show. Anamorphic lenses, super shallow depth of field. I mean, it's just a very unique, deliberate choice of filmmaking and I love it. And somebody was involved with creating that. And for that, they get paid the bigger bucks. So now we kind of have, you got an understanding hopefully of that to get to that point and to maintain the position where you're working frequently. There's the personal business of directing. So all of those numbers above might sound great, but the analogy I'll use is like, if you have any friends in construction and they get a $2 $2 million bid to do a house and build a house, that is not $2 million in their pocket, right? They have to hire all the contractors. They have to have insurance. They have to you know, buy all the materials out of that money. And they might just walk away with 150000 after all that, right? That, might, that job might take a year and a half, two years. So there are many things that fall into what you need to best present yourself as a, as a working director. Now, this is not prescriptive. I can't say this is what you have to do. It is what I've done. It's what I've seen other directors do. And from my experience in the worlds of branding and marketing and advertising, it just makes sense. But you only got to do it. But what I think helps you in the presentation game is you want to have a reel. A reel will cost you money. You have a reel that represents what you do best. Before all of this, you also need to have been very specific about what kind of director you want to be. So we've talked about multi-camera, single camera, reality, live TV. We haven't talked much in this episode about genre. Do you want to be comedy, a comedy director? Do you want to be drama? Are you more interested in action, procedurals? Like those are the other things that are really important in terms of the conversation you build around your goals and your and your voice. You really, it really benefits you to know precisely what that is. So you can take all of these assets I'm about to list and use them toward that target, right? So you've got a reel. I have uh, a very talented former student of mine from NYU and also a co-worker across many of the branded content things that I've done. I mentioned Jean-Claude Billmeyer earlier for doing the graphics on the podcast, on the video version. He cuts my reels. That costs money. I try and update that reel every year, which means I have to be very vigilant about getting digital copies of my episodes keeping kind of a running log of what holes I may have in my reel as far as how I want to present myself to the industry and taking time to keep track of those things so I can easily 
revise the reel when the time comes without Jean-Claude having to search through all the footage. I can say, hey, take out that scene from this show and put in this one. Um, coming off these episodes of you, I already know shots that I want to add as montage moments and also sequences that I want to add that will begin to show people that I can handle action in a way that doesn't exist on my current reel. Because you're often having to present or defend your ability to do these things that you are interested in doing if you haven't done them yet. It's also not something to get upset or, or you know, bitter about. If you know the history of Peter Jackson coming off of Heavenly Creatures, he spent $50,000 of his own money to make a 10-minute project that would help him prove to the producers that he could handle a trilogy like Lord of the Rings, right? So we're all having to do this in some way, shape or form with different levels of available funds, but we're often having to make sure people understand who we are and what we can do. So you wanna have a reel, a reel is gonna cost money. You wanna have a website. A website is going to cost you a little bit of money unless you are fluent in code and Squarespace or Wix or WordPress or whatever, but you're going to want to have that. I feel like that's your home base and people can, when people Google you, if you are able to send them to your headquarters and control the bio that they read, the reel that they see, the selected projects, the images of yourself working, whatever it may be, feed them out to your social media accounts. That is the best way to defend whatever your career goals are because they can go there and it's curated by you. So that reel typically lives on that website. It's important that you, in my opinion, are actively making passion projects that show either what direction you're going toward or reinforce what your, what your skill set is. At the end of the day, right, I, I'll correlate it to being a chef. Chefs don't wait for invitations to cook. Chefs show up at your house with dope shit to eat. And so I think the more you're able to in this democratized universe of being able to pick up your phone or your friend has a camera or whatever it may be, just go make something. That was the driving force for us behind the Wednesday morning podcast. We wanted to make a short film that showed the kind of tone and voice of some of the projects we're pitching. And we were like, all right, well, let's go. If we can't make a short film, let's make a narrative podcast. And, you know, there we are and got to work with some great people that who knows what that'll lead to. But it's about the creation of the work and doing it only to master your craft, enhance your skills, but also show people what you're about. Because those passion projects lead to things that you would never anticipate. Tomorrow, I start day one of prep on All Rise. I've told this story before, but the passion project short film, Black Card, that I did that got me into four different television director programs. The star of that film, along with Dorian Missick, was Simone Missick, who is now number one on the call sheet on All Rise, and I'll be going there tomorrow to start prep on the season finale. That was not anything that could be predicted, but look what happens when you put that work in and just put it out there without any expectation other than making good work and getting better as a storyteller. Now, I've beaten that horse to death, obviously. The personal business of directing will also include meetings. So meetings are, you know, the, the tours you do once you have a representation, when you go sit in people's offices in the old days pre-COVID and let them know who you are. All the things that have made your real and website and passion projects effective, 
you're now just being the live, you know, human embodiment of that. And that's what you're taking into the office with these people or to your Zoom meeting with these folks or to your social media, you know, for all to engage with. Those are important aspects of, of doing the job. And that's where, whether you're working professionally as a director, protected by the guild or doing your own thing, it's important to build up these assets to really represent yourself. I'm Ramla Mohammed, co-executive producer on Little Fires Everywhere, and you're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is Pete Chapman's upcoming book from Michael Weezy Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him a start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is coming soon. or who is on the director's team. I think first and foremost, there should be a type of person that you're looking for. And that person should be honest. That person should tell you, you know, their honest opinion. They don't all have, you don't want yes men or women on your team. You want people who have opinions and an expertise and also relationships because that's what you don't have when you're starting out. And as your career continues, even when you build out relationships, you're going to want someone who has different relationships than you. That team, once you've met with a bunch of folks and you're confident that they're going to be honest and truthful and insightful and helpful on your journey, that team will typically, I won't say typically, I'll tell you who it could consist of and and, and you'll design it accordingly. But it could consist of a manager. That person is Going back to the numbers I mentioned earlier, that person will be getting 10% of your pay. That manager is involved in kind of helping you craft a career. They know what you're thinking long-term. You have those conversations with them and they work with you to sculpt a career. And that sculpting happens daily. It happens based off of the jobs you turn down, the meetings you seek, the projects you you know make for yourself as passion projects that all has an eye on on a five ten you know lifetime trajectory for you with the if ideally if you're working with the right person so you've got the manager you've got the agent the agent is also taking ten percent they are take they are more of an incoming kind of relationship in a sense of they know what's immediately on the table looking to be produced directed written and they're looking to get you in the room and on those jobs for the things that are happening right now at this moment. That's not to say that they're not looking at uh, a long-term view of your career, but their day-to-day is about, here's what's happening. This thing needs a director in June. This pilot uh, is looking to attach somebody before they go out to uh, buyers. That's what their focus is on. You will also potentially have a 
business manager. They will help you keep your finances in order. You'll probably get to a point where you're very busy and it gets little things like, you know, paying the person who did your website or cut your reel become things that are hard to do when you're on set all the time. Those folks are going to be seeing a percentage. You're a lawyer. You better have a lawyer. They're going to be seeing a percentage. Let's say you have a PR team, public relations team to help keep you out in the news if you're that kind of personality, or maybe it's, you know, for three months at a time here and there based off particular projects that are brewing. That's going to cost you money. Maybe you have a social media manager. Maybe you're too busy or not the most versatile or fluent in managing your social media conversation. You have a person doing that. All of those things cost money. And then if we get into the world of, you know, maintaining your life, because you'll find that if you work very often, you're getting up at 5.30 a.m. every day and going to set and getting home at, you know, nine, eight, nine o'clock, maybe later, you can start to lose the attention and focus on putting your meals together, right? Cooking healthy things for yourself. So maybe you end up getting a chef or you have the gym membership so you can, you know, there's a, there's a physicality to the job that kind of gets overlooked because it's such a creative position, but there is a, you have to have stamina. Anyway, all of these things are things that cost money and make those numbers that I've mentioned earlier in the how much do directors make section begin to evaporate very, 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 very quickly. And so that is why you often see directors trying to work as often, as frequent as possible and move into different spaces like pilots and also films and tell as many stories as possible. And I say this all the time, I feel like being platform agnostic is a very beneficial thing. You know, I'm, I'm of the mindset that a story on any platform, a good story on any platform is a story I'm willing to tell. So if it's in the podcast space, let's do it. If it's um, about to be, you know, on Quibi, I know that didn't work out well, but if it's on Quibi and, it, and it's a dope story, yo, I'm available. Let's go. Because it's just about working and, and, and telling these stories and, and working with talented people and challenging yourself in, in, in this art that we, that we do. So that is the director's team. In the early parts of your career, you will have that team may be very, may not have any members on it, you know, but study the game, hop on IMDB Pro, have an account on there and see who reps the people that you know, the people that you respect, the careers that you're uh, interested in, in, in kind of maybe mimicking in the beginning, you got to have a target and see uh, who's on their team and, and what those folks do for them. You know, there's often a conversation around the, the big agency versus the smaller boutique boutique agency. And that's always going to be a personal choice. I think that a driving force behind this ecosystem of the director's team is always going to be the director. You are going to have to be specific about what you want to do, what you don't want to do, so you can empower these folks and their networks and their talents to best help you build the career that you want. And uh, at a certain time, you know, something may change. You may be looking to go to bigger agencies or change your lawyer or find different management. It'll all be driven really by your career goals. And those are questions that you'll have to deal with when the time comes. But keep your eye on the target and, you know, be specific. So what is the director's attitude? 
I've kind of spoken at nauseum about this and the various guests that we've had the pleasure of having on the show have done it as well. The director's attitude needs to be infectious in some way, shape or form, whether it's positive cheerleading, efficient creativity, you know, nurturing, whatever it is, you just have to have a, a, a presence that elevates whenever you show up because otherwise there is no benefit of you being there versus someone else, if you know what I mean. And so I think that's super important. I think working to find out the type of director that are is good, right? Some people are, you know, actors, directors, and actors really like working with them because the actors know that this director can communicate. Some are more technical, particularly in TV. I think you see that a lot because people are often moving up from the cinematographer's ranks. And that's often because they have a facility with the camera and blocking and know how to make a day versus, and these are generalized terms, but they, they do have some truth to them versus sometimes, you know, folks that come from film may be not used to the speed with which you have to move in TV and the, the very minimal yet creative coverage that you have to employ to make a day. So, you know, determining which one you are, and I think it's important to work to fill those gaps, right? I felt early on, I was kind of told by actors I worked with that I was more of an actor's director. And in my branded content days, you know, the decade of doing that work, I really said, let me become more technical. And that's why I began to shoot and edit more so I could be more fluent in that part of the work because you never know which pedal you're going to have to lean on more to get you out of a scene. Sometimes you're going to have to know that if I block it like this, I can get out of here in, in an hour and make the day because we fell behind on another scene. But then on an, at another moment, you might have to call on your actor muscle and pull on some kind of skill that can help the actor find the moment to get out of the scene in the same amount of time, right? A good resource for folks, if you are not familiar with it, is The Actor's Thesaurus. It's a great book that you go word by word and it'll give you a bunch of synonyms for that word that are active. So it can help you identify the best word or words that can trigger the right understanding of the subtext for the actor and hopefully, you know, provoke and prompt the performance that you're looking for without having to have a Freudian, you know, conversation about motivation and, and psychology and all of that. So that's a really great resource. Uh, I would recommend as well, the actor's thesaurus. What's the day-to-day -day life of a director? I'm very proud to say that it's kind of, for me at least, it hasn't changed. When I was working at NYU, doing that job full-time, that was what I had to do to make, you know, ends meet. And then it was watching movies or reading scripts or writing something. But, you know, every day there was some furthering of the craft that was happening. And that is really what continues uh, to this day. The nine to five or the maybe five to <laughs> five to 10 part of the day may have changed, but Within that and around those uh, committed times, I'm still studying the game, reading, looking for new stories, working on my own, talking to my creative friends, looking at their work. The director's work is really just, I think, a point of view and a perspective and an openness to receiving what you experience in the day and finding the 
storytelling nuggets that are there. So you're always in a position or you're always in a place where you're looking at the who, the what, the why, the when, and trying to filter it thematically into storytelling units. And I think doing that and working that muscle all the time means that you never have to really call upon it in a new way when you're back on set. It's just something that you're always working on and it's always at your fingertips. So that concludes the director's life episode here it's our first business episode i hope it came out all right it's a little different just sitting here talking into my mic this whole time by myself but i invite you all to shoot questions to us let us know via instagram you know on my page at pete chapman or at let's shoot with pete chapman if you have any comments or questions if you want to hit us on with an email question it's let's shoot with pete chapman at gmail.com fire away And uh, in the meantime, of course, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating. And we will hit you with episode 25 next week. I got a guest that I hope lines up. It depends on scheduling, but I'll announce that as soon as I have it. And hope y'all have a great week. Peace. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N.